This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. His story, a sign of the great love that God shows to all. Modern Americans often treat history as a kind of trivial pursuit game, only played by those who enjoy such esoteric pursuits. In reality, history is far more important. In the best sense, it is the story of God's providence for humanity, the capstone of His creation, as described in the book of Genesis. Indeed, much of the Holy Scripture consists of books of history. Mr. John Horvat explores this providential idea of history and compares it to the political situation in the early 21st century in his essay, Recovering the Providential Vision of History After the Election. Recent election-related events only make sense when we have a providential vision of history. Most people don't. As a result, many are confused and depressed now that things have taken a turn for the worst. They don't know how to deal with the very real evils that overwhelm us. There are even signs of despair. Our problem is that we suffer from a naturalistic vision of life inherited from Enlightenment thinkers. This vision denies that events have any supernatural meaning. Science is deemed sufficient to account for all phenomena. Thus, we tend to interpret events as random sequences of actions, organized according to certain methods and processes. Our naturalistic culture also teaches us that God is largely absent from the complex interplay of individuals and activities. At best, He is the absent clockmaker who wound up the universe and left it to run on its own. Thus, modern society evolves with no specific end. Inside this framework, our American way of life radiates optimism about progress and material prosperity. It might be likened to a cruise ship on a never-ending cruise. When disaster strikes, everything is turned upside down. Thus, Personal misfortune has no rational purpose in life. Political defeat is reduced to being the product of intrigue, fraud, and conspiracies. With such an outlook, there is a constant attempt to escape from misfortune, engage in wishful thinking, or eschew reality to embrace and believe in fantasy. When all else fails, we easily fall into despair and fatalism. I fear that many now suffer the consequences of this vision after the election shipwreck. The Church's teaching on providence is entirely different. It acknowledges the Creator's ordering action upon the universe, which we call providence. The hand of divine providence coordinates the complex conditions by which individuals live together in society. Providence governs the universe and directs the course of affairs with purpose and benevolence. We can define divine providence as the plan conceived in the mind of God according to which he directs all creatures to their proper end. Thus, we can explain life with meaning instead of randomness. We can discern a purpose behind the misfortunes we suffer. The proper end of all creatures is to manifest the glory of God in some way. We glorify God when society lives together in harmony and virtue. 
evil, which exists because of our sinful malice, is permitted so that a greater good might come out of it. Even the evildoer must eventually give glory to God when punished by his justice. The life of a Christian requires that we work with the action of divine providence, never against it. Mindful of man's free will, God requires our intelligent cooperation in carrying out his designs. He expects us to use resources that in his providence he places at our disposal. He assists us with his grace and supernatural gifts to aid us when disaster strikes. Providence is manifested in several ways. God often acts through secondary causes to order society when providing for the physical needs required for living together in community. St. Thomas says that humanity is directed to its end by the God-given means of natural law, conscience, and sanctions. Providence is not fate. God respects our free will so that we might change the course of history. God's providence is thus manifested when he answers our prayers and supplications. God even manifests himself by permitting evil events to put us to the test as part of his providential plan. Quote, Almighty God would in no wise permit evil to exist in his work, says St. Augustine, unless he were so almighty and so good as to produce good even from evil. Unquote. The result of this providential vision is that no matter what happens, everything proceeds with a purpose toward its final end of glorifying God. Even in sad and dire times like our own, God always wins. This conclusion applies to politics, which is the art or science of governing. God's providence governs all political action since it mirrors his own governing role. Indeed, the same providence that directs the course of the affairs of each person with purpose and benevolence also directs and provides for the affairs of families, societies, and nation. Thus, all political events happen inside God's providence. When the outcome of an election is good, then leaders and people can work together with God to further his glory by the practice of virtue and the development of rich culture. However, when society falls into decadence, its people work against God's providence and try to diminish his glory. God permits that people suffer the natural consequences of their vices. Political elections will reflect this situation as people get the leaders they deserve. The nation will then be chastised with the scourge of godless leaders who serve as instruments of God's justice to bring people back to him. Thus, the general election must be seen from the perspective of God's providence. There was a reason it turned out the way it did. Those who think America did not deserve this chaotic outcome need only reflect that we remain a very sinful nation. Many good things were accomplished over the last few years. However, what we needed was a moral regeneration to return to God. This did not happen. As a nation, 
we have fallen deeper into sin. The nation's collective sins show no sign of abating, as sodomy, blasphemy, and Satanism are mainstreamed. The reactions are not proportional. Our Lady's Fatima message provided a blueprint for efficacious action that was largely ignored this election cycle. Those who strive to be good were not good enough to change the downward spiral of our vices. Thus, God has delivered us over to the corruption and evil of the times. No amount of imagining otherwise can change the reality of the outcome or our culpability. The greatest of expectations were placed in strictly human, political situations, as if David the prophet king had never been inspired by God to write, Put not your trust in princes, in the children of men, in whom there is no salvation. Unquote. See Psalm 145, verses 2 to 3. If we maintain the naturalistic vision of history, it will necessarily lead us to the scenes of desperation witnessed at the Capitol. We will try to find explanations for what went wrong in conspiracy theories, fanciful lies, apocryphal prophecies, and wild rumors that will end in ruin. Nothing will make sense in the terrible days that await us. All will seem lost. However, not all is lost. The same providence which permits evil things to befall us is also with us. God awaits our repentance and cooperation so that our efforts might bear fruit and give Him glory. We can act with confidence, knowing that God has always come to the aid of His people when they call upon Him. Our role now is to be attuned to the designs of providence and act accordingly. Such action includes continued political efforts, which are undoubtedly important. However, we must watch for every opportunity that providence puts in our path to live, promote, and change society to glorify Him. We must work for that missing moral regeneration requested at Fatima that will return the nation to God. If this is done we can expect much more than we have lost. In the naturalistic Enlightenment perspective, history is a random sequence of events, and there is little hope in times of misfortune. In the Church's providential vision of history, God provides in times of crisis. After all, God always wins. Instead of adopting the providential view that Mr. Horvat urges in his last essay, many in modern society are trying to exclude God from history altogether. They want to replace Christianity with a pseudo-faith that knows no higher authority than the political process. This view must be refuted. Mr. Edwin Benson reviews a book that makes that argument in his essay, A Battle Plan for Defeating the Secularist State Religion. The left's worldview, secularism, is a religion. Secularists treat the state like Christians treat God. This contention is a primary point of an excellent new book, Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic, by Austin Roos. 
The author sets the stage by showing how Catholics are under constant attack. The secularists believe that they have cornered us inside our quote-unquote rigid doctrines and unchanging traditions. They promise to liberate humanity from the Catholic faith that they proclaim to be oppressive. In our midst, many traitors pick and choose from amongst our dogmas while actively demoralizing us. The turncoat sees surrender as the only option. Others are ready to quote-unquote throw in the towel after fighting long but unwisely. A third camp argues that we must retreat into the desert, lick our wounds, and wait for better days. In the face of so much discouragement, Mr. Roos rejects all defeatism. As the president for the Center for Family and Human Rights, CFAM, he urges Catholics to fight. He has struggled valiantly to prevent anti-family resolutions from getting through the United Nations bureaucracy. Mr. Roos contends that modern secularism is a religion. Quote, Secularism itself is as much of a comprehensive worldview as any religion. Therefore, at its limit, it is the functional equivalent of a religion. Unquote. Under Siege takes the position that the United States has always been torn between strong religious sentiments and secular philosophies. He notes that the English settlements were often based on religious foundations. Even Catholics found refuge here in the colony of Maryland. However, the so-called Enlightenment ideas also grew deep roots in the English colonies. Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson were thoroughly smitten with the ideas of Rousseau, Voltaire, and others. The result was a, quote, delicate and unnatural balance of a religious people with a religious worldview, governed by a secular government with no explicit religious commitment, unquote. In this setting, quote, Thomas Jefferson deployed the idea of a wall of separation between church and state. This wall of separation appears nowhere in our founding documents. Yet in 1947, it became an explicit precedent of the Supreme Court in the Emerson v. Board case, unquote. The Emerson case began a process that transformed Jefferson's quote-unquote wall into a bastion, protecting the state from religious influence, something that even the quote-unquote sage of Monticello did not openly advocate. For three-quarters of a century, secularists have pinned their hopes for the nation's future on that wall. In the 21st century, they promote their non-religion with religious zeal. Most Christians accept the wall of separation without quibble. That sentiment has led to a wave of self-censorship in which religious people avoid making religious arguments in the public square or public school. As a result... Secular zealots challenged prayer in schools, crosses, and manger scenes. Quote, The only language now permissible in the public square is the supposedly neutral language of empiricism, science, and secularity. Unquote. Eliminating symbols was only the beginning. The leftists learned their lessons well. 
They used a similar process to impose contraception, abortion, and acceptance of sodomy upon American society, all under the banner of freedom and separation. Given such a scenario, Mr. Roos asserts that there is no finer time to be a faithful Catholic. How is success possible with so much of the society stacked against traditional Catholic culture? Mr. Roos's optimism is infectious. The answer is simple. God is on our side. Quote, How blessed are we to be called by God to defend his creation right here, right now. He knew his most blessed creation, the human person, would be attacked. And yet he sent us, you and me, to fight this battle. And make no mistake, most, if not all, of our society's deadly aggression is aimed at the Catholic Church. The Church is the only institution that has stood solidly against the agenda, and now the religion of the sexual left. But remember, Gideon's army was tiny too, only 300 men. We are promised by our faith that God can bring good out of any evil. The good Lord has given each of us specific talents and specific tasks to carry out. These tasks were ordained for us from the beginning of the world, unquote. To prove his point, Mr. Roos cites the work that his group, CFAM, has done in the United Nations. At first, the UN bureaucracy tried to ignore it. Then, the global leftists tried to sneak their agenda into UN documents secretly. Now, the anger and mockery are open. Quote, But over the past quarter century, we stopped them from making abortion a global human right. We stopped them from redefining the family. We succeeded in negotiating a proper definition of gender. Unquote. Even so fine a book as this has its flaws. Mr. Bruce criticizes the quote-unquote nostalgia in which people yearn for a golden age that never existed. He cites two eras, the 50s and medieval Christendom. The criticism for 50s nostalgia is well-founded. During this time, the church was thriving, with most parishes having multiple priests and schools staffed by nuns. Vocations and conversions were also growing. A closer look, however, reveals that the winds of change were gathering at the time. Bad theology and innovations were starting to appear. Many bishops' chanceries and seminaries were buzzing with revolt. However, the nostalgia label referring to medieval Christendom is misplaced. Any references to this order must be centered on the social teaching and rich Catholic doctrines applied to society and not on its human shortcomings that come from our fallen nature. Mr. Roos writes that, quote, I sometimes interact and am indeed friendly with a religious association called the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property that endeavors to keep alive the various royal houses around the world, unquote. Any admiration for Christendom must be based on church teachings about the social order and not on keeping alive royal houses. 
The TFP's position harkens back to the unity inherent in the medieval interrelationship of church and state. This order gave rise to an organic Christian society that allowed society to flourish inside the framework of our fallen nature. This realistic vision of ordering society avoids the soul-deadening nature of socialism and the sterile optimism of secularism. Catholics under siege do not succumb to nostalgia when they hope in the triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart, foretold to the world at Fatima in 1917. Overall, Mr. Roos brings readers a refreshing mix of realistic analysis and inspiration. Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic, is an essential addition to the library of anyone who longs to see the Church restored to her rightful place in society. Natural law is a term used to describe the reality that there are laws that apply to all people in all places at all times. These laws are obvious to anyone who looks at nature objectively. One of those laws is that there are only two sexes, male and female. All of the other so-called genders that the academics invent are just that, inventions, figments of overheated minds that have more education than they have wisdom. The third essay in this podcast centers on the U.S. Supreme Court's disastrous Bostock versus Clayton County decision. In it, the court abandoned natural law. Mr. John Horvat describes both the legal disaster and the way back from it in his essay, Natural Law Judges Are the Only Way to Save the Judiciary. One reason conservatives give major importance to elections is that they know the selection of judges can impact law for decades. Thus, when President Trump selected two Supreme Court judges, many hoped that the court would shift to the right. The June 5, 2020 Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia decision dashed these hopes. What legislators could not obtain in the halls of Congress, the conservative-dominated court imposed on the American people. The 6-3 court decision extended workplace protections to include sexual orientation and transsexual quote-unquote identity. It arbitrarily inserted these categories into Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Thus, it transforms sinful behavior into a civil right protected by law and imposes second-class citizenship on those whose religious beliefs run contrary. What made matters worse is that the conservative justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion that gave the LGBT lobby its victory. Bush nominee Chief Justice John Roberts also voted with the majority in the now infamous ruling. Even the feared Justice Brett Kavanaugh approved the merits of the move, but said that Congress should have made the decision. No dissenting judge questioned the right or wrong of the matter. Their dissent only criticized judicial overreach. From a moral perspective, the decision was nine to nothing. Thus, many are asking what went wrong with the process by which judges considered solid on major conservative issues suddenly broke ranks and voted with the liberals. Others wondered how judicial candidates vetted by conservative groups like the Federalist Society could end up reading into the Constitution and American law things that were never there.
The decision makes clear that a complete change of judicial perspective is urgently needed. The reason why conservative judges have failed is that they have adopted defective schools of interpretation. Their role should be to apply the immutable principles of the law to the changing concrete circumstances of the day. However, modern judges interpret the law by other means. Some take a constitutionalist approach to American law, based on a strict reading of the Constitution. Originalist and textualist judges interpret the law according to what they consider was the original intent of the founders or legislators. While these and other approaches do tend to conserve some traditions, they are not anchored to an objective moral law, but only in documents, opinions, and intentions. Judges come to believe that the law finds its origin in their opinions and speculations about these documents, not unchangeable norms of justice. The conservative justices must also confront the liberal conception of value-free law, American law is influenced by Enlightenment thought that tends to turn the legal order into systems of value-neutral contracts. These are supposed to work mechanically to keep society in order. Within this amoral framework, a liberal judiciary is free to imagine its own legal orders based on distorted visions of freedom that now allow people to create their own realities. Court decisions then provide the tyranny to impose these fantasies upon the whole population. When the law has no firm moral anchor, anything is possible, including granting privileged, protected status to immoral gender ideology. If this notion is not changed, important decisions will always be nine to nothing. At least, the disastrous decision makes clear the only path to victory. The only alternative is to return to America's higher law tradition, anchored in natural law norms that do not change. America was founded on a higher law tradition that reaches back to the Ten Commandments, which summarizes natural law. This perspective holds at the source of all law, whether customary, common, Roman or statutory, is God and his eternal law. Whether a person believes in God is immaterial, since this law is found in the nature of things, not in a sacred text. It was known by ancient peoples. Its universal character can be seen in Cicero, for example, who used the terms eternal law, moral law, or natural law to describe an objective moral compass that makes social order possible. This natural law is the same for all peoples, places, and times, although its applications vary. It can be perceived in society by unaided reason. St. Paul says it is written upon the hearts of all, Christian or pagan. See Romans chapter 2, verse 15. The American system inherited a strong higher law tradition from English common law. Thus, a proposed change to a higher law is not an innovation, but a return to what once existed. It is not an invention like those now being imposed as law, as seen in the Bostock decision. 
Leftist ideologies are constantly proposing new legal changes based on socialist, ecological, and sexual agendas. History has shown how proposals like these run counter to human nature and result in socio-political disasters like communism and Nazism. A natural law perspective comes from a proven order well-suited to human nature. It is not imposed, but relies upon those naturally regulating institutions inside society that always emerge when individuals resolve to unite in pursuit of the common good. Unlike the left's ideologies, it cannot be regulated, stimulated, or legislated into existence. It is rooted in the social institutions of family, community, and faith. And although it applies to everyone, the Church is its best and most secure guardian. The Bostock decision makes it clear that the only way to save the judiciary is through correctly oriented natural law judges. Present judges need to be informed by natural law. This involves returning America to whence she came. There needs to be a moral compass to counter the immoral one that now dominates and distorts all law and leads the country to anarchy and ruin. This concludes His Story, A Sign of the Great Love That God Shows to All. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's Return to Order is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.